Binge Mode Star Wars is presented by State Farm. You know those days when it feels like problems just pop out of nowhere? Like when a young Mithral wants to use your vac tube? He's got to evacuate. Hasn't done it since the solstice. The helpful folks at State Farm know all about that. Like a fender bender when you're already late for meeting Grief Karga. Or a thief. A thief who a bounty hunter couldn't get to. Yeah. Breaking into your home. Making off your new flat screen TV. Luckily, there are more than 19,000 agents who are there for you. And they pay inactive credits, not imperial credits. Because when it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are ready to help. Find an agent today at statefarm.com. Today's show is also brought to you by the Google Assistant. The Google Assistant is ready to help you get more done with just your voice. In the car, at home, and everywhere you take your phone. When you're driving and want to listen to your favorite Ringer podcasts, hands-free, just say, Hey Google, play the latest episode of the Rewatchables podcast. Okay, here's the latest episode of the Rewatchables, The Shining, with Bill Simmons, Sean Fennessy, and Chris Ryan. Hey Google, pause podcast. A little help, hands-free. Just say, hey, Google, to get started. Many have passed through. They seek the same one as you. Binge mode's adult content? Yes. They died. Do I want to know if binge mode also contains spoilers? You do. I can show you to the encampment. And now binge mode. This is only a down payment. I have a comptono of Beskar waiting for you upon delivery of the asset. Alive? Yes, alive. Although I acknowledge that bounty hunting is a complicated profession. This being the case, proof of termination is also acceptable for a lower fee. That is not what we agreed upon. I'm simply being pragmatic. Hello! Yeah! And welcome to Binge Mode Star Wars. Yes. Yes! Proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, editor-in-chief of TheRinger.com. What a great website. It's great. The best car of websites. Joining me today, now that he's finished evacuating his thorax. I've been holding it since the solstice, <laughs> and it's just been building up. It's Ringer Senior Creative and your Jedi Master, Jason Concepcion. Also, I'm molting. <laughs> But thankfully, I can always evacuate my takes on Binge Mode Star Wars, where we're exploring the wider Star Wars universe, the Skywalker saga films, the anthology films, the Mandalorian, plus numerous other facets of a galaxy far, far away, all leading up to the release of Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker, December 20th. Yeah. Please make the journey to the farthest reaches of the galaxy with us by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Droids, welcome. Mm -hmm. And please rate and review us. Give us those five-star ratings, or we will send IG-11 after you. He won't miss. He won't miss. And if he does miss, he'll blow himself up. 
And that's it for you, too. Bye. <laughs> Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans, and which is an excellent place to theorize about baby Yoda. Itty baby Yoda's true identity. And please head to the ringer.com slash shop to check out Binge Bone merch. It's what you want after you're riding a blurg. You need it. Just fucking blurgs, man. Flexible fabric. Last time on Binge Mode, we explored how hope shapes the glorious Rogue One Star Wars story. And today, we're diving deep, deep into a brand new Star Wars story, The Mandalorian. Chapter one, the pilot of Disney Plus's new live action Star Wars show. As always, spoiler warning, while we obviously don't know anything about the future of this particular show, no spoilers from the future, we will be talking about all of Star Wars. We're going to go deep on details from this episode of The Mandalorian and the entire Star Wars saga to date, taking official canon and legends, hashtag not canon, into account. So melt down your Beskar, because it's time to make a less traditional agreement. Mal, there is one job. Let's see the puck. No puck. Face-to-face, direct commission, deep pockets. Plenty of plot points. So let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happens in the debut episode of The Mandalorian Mm -hmm. by heading to a podcast studio far, far away and queuing up the opening crawl. That was wonderful. (laughs) A long time ago. Galaxy far, far away. The Empire has fallen, and a bounty hunter wearing Mandalorian armor has tracked his quarry to a cantina on an icy planet. Inside, some patrons, a couple humans, one speaking Huddies, and a squid headed Quarren are roughing up a Mithral. They're Bullying him. They uh, want that sweet musk. He's young. He's so young. That mm. Mm, the, the musk from his glands must be wonderful. They turn their attentions toward this Mandalorian stranger sauntering in. He makes short work of them. The Mithral is elated until he realizes that the bounty hunter is actually there for him. Tough moment for our and, dude. And, uh, you know, he can be brought in dead or alive however he wishes. Up to him. The Mandalorian marches his prize across the ice, calls for transport to his ship, declining a droid-driven speeder mm-hmm. in favor of a rickety speeder with a biological pilot. This is my one note on Mando so far. Why don't you like droids? I mean, it doesn't look great on the surface of it, but let's let it we'll, play we'll, out. We'll let it play out. We'll get into it a bit more today, too. But I'm, I'm concerned and I'm registering my concern officially on the record. After a uh, quite dicey run-in with a Ravenac, a large predatory beast that lives under the ice and apparently feeds on waste. So I think it's just like, is maybe tr- just drawn to the waste? And who isn't? <laughs> like us. Just a lot of talk in this Feeding episode on the about waste. shit. I, know, honestly. And like, I, I appreciated it. We want to see we, the side of the story. Finally, we discover how you shit in space. I know. And the answer is in a bathroom with no door. <laughs> Get a privacy screen. The Mandalorian gets his ship, a pre-Empire Razor Crest, so dilapidated that the Mithral offers to buy them a space Uber. He's like, I will hail a blade. Yeah, I, hey, listen. If the Roy family can do it, so can we. Exactly. They get off the planet. 
And the Mithral engages in some small talk, offering to bribe the Mandalorian to pay him off before, in a very thinly veiled, I'm attempting to escape bit of subterfuge here, excuses himself to use the vac tube, heaviest air quotes you can imagine. He's molting. The Mithral pokes around the ship, discovering the Mando's arsenal and his collection of Carbonite frozen bounties? It's an ample collection. Which, by the way, is the fate that awaits the Mithral. The Mandalorian locks his prize in Carbonite, flies off to meet his contact. Merciless. The meetup takes place in a cantina filled with shady seeming individuals. Bosk, is that you? (laughs) The Mandalorian's human contact, Grief Karga, incredible name, attempts to redeem the bounties with Imperial credits, and the Mandalorian rejects these, pointing out that the Empire no longer exists. Yeah, what are you trying to do, buddy? There are a lot of helpful moments that orient us in time yes, here. The Empire's very, fallen. This very is well done. After Return of the Jedi, before The Force Awakens, we are in the year 9 ABY, nine after the Battle of Yavin, five years after the Battle of Endor. Get out of here. Palpy's gone. I won't take your Imperial credits. He ends up taking instead... <laughs> Not to sidetrack us for too long, too quickly, but we do need to talk about this for a moment. He takes instead the calamari flan for half of the initially agreed upon price. If he would have taken tres leches, I think he could have got 60%. <laughs> this is literally like saying, what if instead of boiling Admiral Radis for you, they put him in a custard and gave him to you as dessert? Carga puts the Mandalorian on the trail of a certain high credit job. No bounty puck available. The bounty can only be acquired by taking a face-to-face meeting with the client, an apparently very wealthy client. The Mandalorian arrives at a nondescript building, passing plenty of carnage on the way. And inside, he finds an elderly ex-imperial protected by grizzled stormtroopers, their armor caked in dirt, blood. After some small talk and a tense standoff with a Mysterious Dr. Pershing, wearing Imperial uniform. The client, a.k.a. Werner Herzog. What a, uh, <gasps> best is, stunt casting just, in recent memory. It's incredible. The whole cast is phenomenal, but this is unbelievable. So it's unbelievable. The client, before revealing any details, offers a down payment. A small ingot of rare Beskar steel, which we'll be talking about more. There will be more, he says after successful completion of the job. A mysterious job. Not a lot to go on. The Mandalorian is, of course, interested. Your Grace. He was interested. He was interested. Per Dr. Pershing, the target is to be taken alive. But Mm. the client, over Pershing's objections, offers a lower fee for proof of termination. The client is secretive about the target. There's no bounty puck, as we mentioned. Only a tracking fob. And we know that the target is 50 years old mm-hmm. and last known coordinates will be provided. That's all. That should be enough. The Mandalorian takes a job. Real John and Sansa season seven Winterfell vibes from the client and Dr. Pershing. It's like, right. get on the same page before you conduct your business in front of other people. The Mandalorian walks across town to a place where Mandalorian refugees gather. He meets with a Mandalorian armorsmith. The armorer hands over his credits and his best card. The armorer praises his efforts in supporting the tribe. And she tells him that the metal was gathered in the Great Purge and crafts him a pauldron, shoulder plate, out of the Beskar for his right shoulder, 
as images from the Mandalorian's violent childhood flash by. The rest of the medal will go to foster Mandalorian foundlings, as the bounty hunter once was. The Mandalorian arrives on the target planet. An Ugnaught named Nick Nolte (laughs) (laughs) saves the Mandalorian from a blurg attack. He tells the Mandalorian that others, like him, have come looking for the target, and they all died. But he offers to guide him to the place where the asset is being held. After learning how to ride a blurg, the two set off. The Mandalorian finds himself in a small village in the rocky, barren desert, and it is heavily, heavily guarded. Just then, an IG-11 bounty droid who is fucking dope, though much like Val and Saw Gerrera, slightly confused about when you do and don't need to die. We need to update the the OS on this IG. <laughs> like, it's very utilitarian. It gets the job done, but I think that it's like, let's get him up to like OS 13.2 or whatever it is. <laughs> he saunters into town and announces his intentions to acquire the asset. A massive, violent firefight breaks out. The Mandalorian and IG-11 team up to take down the guards, and they agree to split the reward. Mm-hmm. They cut their way into the room where the tracking fob says the asset is being held. And there they find... Oh! An infant. A very cute... 50-year-old infant. A 50-year-old infant. <laughs> the same species as Yoda. Unbelievable. What a twist. The Mandalorian takes out IG-11 before it can kill the baby. And we're on to episode two. Boy, are we. Wow! A little peek behind the curtains before we move on. You took a screen grab of the first time we see the little Bubbleless face and dropped it into our Slack and said, that feeling when you've been shitting in your diaper for 50 years. Uh, it's just a lot. <laughs> it's just a lot. Just nipples absolutely raw by this time. Oh my God. Feeding this child for five fucking decades. Well, we don't know how, how the child feeds or really anything else about it, which we'll, we'll get to. But before we do, yeah. put on your diaper, folks, because it's time for the force. Jason. Yeah. This is gathered in the Great Purge. It is good that it is back in the podcast. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's search our feelings and use the force. The defining theme of this episode is motivation. Before we talk about what happened in the episode, let's talk about how the episode came to make its way onto our many monitors in the first place. Streaming wars. How about that? In a galaxy right here, right now. (laughs) Yep. Disney Plus debuted, of course, this week. And The Mandalorian is the marquee show on that particular platform along with all manner of Disney originals, a collection of Marvel movies, including Endgame, Age of Ultron, the two MCU documentaries, and Ant-Man, I believe a couple others. All the Star Wars films, including Clone Wars, Rebels, etc. And the Disney animated films. It is really quite an offering that I think i Seeing it all in one place, you're really struck by what a library this is. Uh And I immediately dove into The Mandalorian as soon as I could. Same. And it felt great, folks. It did feel great. It was so fun. Yeah, it was really fun. It was so fun. Ben Lindbergh wrote a great piece on TheRinger.com, a great website, yesterday. And one of the things that he focused on is this idea that the episode drew you in completely. Yeah, it really did. But... 
it drew you in through its mysteries. So like many of the most compelling introductions to a new Star Wars tale, you have to strike that balance between familiarity, the thing you recognize, the thing you know you want to be near and learn more about, and something that feels totally new and fresh. I don't know the answer to this thing. Are you going to give it to me? And this episode, as Ben wrote about, definitely asked more questions than it provided answers. And this is— Barely gave you names. Barely any character names, including for our titular Mandalorian, who we will be calling Mando. Planet names? Don't Where know. Are we? we can guess, but we don't know. The episode doesn't have a name. It's called Chapter One. The theme stretches across the entire experience. There's this quality of anonymity to it, yeah. which on the one hand allows you to explore some of these themes and ideas, and on the other hand just allows you to sort of ease into learning who you are, where you are, why you're there. What was so interesting about the fact that that was the nature of the first chapter, or the first episode, the pilot, is that that had very much been the quality of the lead-up to it. Yes. What do I know about this and what don't I know? Before we get into a little bit of what Jon Favreau's vision for the show was, let's talk a bit about the idea of just choosing to make a show about a Mandalorian bounty hunter, to use that signature armor, this thing that you instantly associate with a Boba Boba Fett, Fett, Jango Fett, and being cool. Just something that people loved and thought looked awesome. But that ultimately, if you go back and stitch together a TRT for all of that, very little. A shockingly small amount of actual material. And I think that's what's so fascinating about the idea of this show. Is it's really Star Wars kind of pared down to the most atomic level bit of essential content. Mm -hmm. As you said, no names. We start media res in the middle of a story. We don't know who our lead character is. And when you think about the opening of, of A New Hope, it's very similar in the sense that you're dropped into this battle that we now know is a battle that is basically over. It's mm-hmm. a chase after a battle with characters chasing down and trying to keep a hold of plans to something that we don't know what the plans are for, characters pretending to be other characters. And then we're getting this in really concentrated detail with the opening of The Mandalorian. No idea what planet we are. No idea who this person is. No idea even who he's after. When he walks into that cantina, it could be any one of these people that he's looking for. Right. You have no idea. Really, the things that you hold on to are the the very broad stroke tropes. The kind of like bone deep cultural understanding of the themes that are involved with the Western. And the kind of deep understanding that we have of Star Wars as a broad universe and the kind of reflexive instinct that you have when you see the Mandalorian helmet and the Mm -hmm. armor, but very little else. And those are the things that, those are really fascinating things to kind of draw you in with. Exactly. And clearly that is so core to Jon Favreau's vision and approach. Jon Favreau, obviously a huge Star Wars fan himself. And I think you feel that in every second of this episode, the storytelling choices, the visual framing, all of it. What else is he a fan of? Westerns. And those Western tropes, those tropes that you just mentioned, are overt. You could argue in some cases too overt. I think the opening showdown at the saloon is maybe like a touch too on the nose in terms of setting the tone. But for my personal taste, after that, from that point forward, I thought it was like pitch perfect for what he was trying to do. Those sweeping vistas 
of places that, like in any great Western, again, give you that dissonance and balance all at once. This sense of a little bit of fear Mm -hmm. about the unknown and how scary the unknown can be. But also, what is the unknown in a Western and in a lot of great storytelling? It's a new frontier. It's something that you get to explore and you get to discover, and this is the person taking you there. And then, beyond just that, that man-with-no-name Western idea applied to so many aspects of this story. Well, what do you need to know at first? You need to know that they're gunslingers. You know, Sean Fennessy, our colleague, called it yesterday, justified with blasters. And it does have that element to it, but it also is unforgiven and so many other things. Space Cowboys, and of course, Star Wars is, at its core, a space opera, a gunslinger fight. Jon Favreau wanted to make a story that, while it would always be of a piece with the rest of Star Wars storytelling, felt tonally unique. So he has a quote from an interview with The Hollywood Reporter before the show launched. I'm trying to evoke the aesthetics of not just the original trilogy, but the first film. Not just the first film, but the first act of the first film. What was it like on Tatooine? What was going on in that cantina? That has fascinated me since I was a child. And I love the idea of the darker, freakier side of Star Wars. The Mad Max aspect of Star Wars. So again, put you somewhere that you know. Put you somewhere you've always wondered about. But give you that other side of it, that other perspective. You're not wandering away with the the fair-haired hero. You're wandering away with the guy who caused the problem in the first place. I absolutely love that. And I think, you know, if you're a Star Wars fan, that quote-unquote freakier side, that the cantina vibe, that really is an essential part of what makes it exciting. I remember just like pausing the cantina scene like and being like, oh, what's that? What's that? What's that? What's that? Um, Another thing that I think is, to go back to the, the Western vibe, Westerns and samurai movies, Akira Kurosawa samurai Mm -hmm. movies, were huge influences on Lucas when he did Star Wars. And I think there's something about that kind of like warrior with a code story Mm -hmm. that is part of the DNA of Star Wars and clearly the Mandalorian. There's something about that we all are from almost like a folktale point of view familiar with Westerns, where you, whether you are a fan of Westerns or not, you're familiar with the feeling. Mm-hmm. The thing I like about samurai movies is that the stories, when you just break them down to plot, are easily transferable to the Western format. That's been done. You know, Seven Samurai was adapted into a famous Western. But there's also something different because of the cultural differences. And I think that's one of the things that's really um working for the vibe of the Mandalorian is there's, yes, there's these Western elements and these kind of samurai movie elements, but there's also something different because this is such an alien world that we know nothing about. Right. And one of the other things that feels a little bit alien, but in a way that is genuinely pretty thrilling, and maybe your mileage varies on this and it's different for different people, but I think we feel this way, is that we're focusing on the anti-hero. And obviously this episode ends, as we will talk about momentarily, with more of a traditionally heroic choice, you know, protecting the innocent, the defenseless, making a difficult choice. But at the end of the day, our our main character, our titular character, is a mercenary, a killer, a gun for hire. On the one hand, that seems kind of contrary to the figures who typically are at the center of a Star Wars story, these prophetic heroes. But 
it actually really does fit in a way that feels like it's, again, of a piece and opening up something new. What is the defining through line of Star Wars? Well, there are a lot of them, obviously, hope, choice, etc. But one of them is the idea of rebellion. The Rebel Alliance, the Resistance, etc., whatever label you want to put on it, even something like Han as a smuggler, people who are willing to defy authority, to do what they think is right or needs to be done. Now, morally, bounty hunting is obviously not <laughs> part of that constellation of choice or nobility. But there is something about being a little bit outside of the traditional power structure. Who is in charge and how are you fighting against that to pursue your own agenda? In that sense, it feels like it's closest maybe Star Wars sister. And this is, again, primary canon, not accounting for the legions of stories and legends. Is probably Rogue One, Mm -hmm. where the people who you're spending time— and first of all, because of the body count. I mean, the violence of it. The People savagery of absolutely it. Get, uh, someone gets cut, cut in, in half. half. That's the opening <laughs> the of the opening, show. <laughs> in the opening of the show, someone gets cut in half. But also because of who is at the heart of it. Yeah. Somebody who is, well, a little bit unconventional. To break it down even further, what is rebellion? Rebellion is about change. It's about wanting to change the status quo. And I think yes. the thing that I— absolutely love about what we've seen thus far is you're seeing characters, no, you don't know their names, having to deal with drastic change. Right. The empire has fallen. The economy is a mess. Forget mm-hmm. about the fact that we're paying in coinage in space. The, <laughs> the agreed yeah. upon, Great point. <laughs> the agreed upon economic framework has fallen apart. People right. are holding currency that they can't spend. Stormtroopers are out of work. They, you know, they can't keep their armor, like, clean. Yep. The Mandalorian is out here just, like, scrounging for jobs that will cover his fuel costs. Everybody is trying to deal with drastic change and upheaval that has gripped the galaxy. And that is another core idea of Star Wars. It's, like, change, whether you're, whether it's being forced upon you, whether you're trying to make it happen, whether it's just happening and you're attempting to deal with it. And to that last point, which I think is crucial— key and and really, really insightful. The Skywalker saga is the heart of Star Wars, but Star Wars is bigger and about more than the Skywalkers. And just choosing this story in the first place, this is the person I want to focus on, this is the part of the world and the society that I want to focus on, allows you to tap into that. What is life like for everyday people? And that is important. What is life like for the people who are making Star Wars is also, in a meta sense, a part of this. And it's difficult to overstate how important the Mandalorian is for the entire Lucasfilm and Disney apparatus in that sense. You might think, oh my God, it's Star Wars, you know. It doesn't matter. They're always going to print money and nothing can go wrong. But recent, in recent, recent years... Has, recent years have proven that untrue. So season two is already underway, yeah. which is a good sign. The initial response seems to be very positive, which is a good sign. And we're in this moment where Solo didn't go the way that people thought it was going to be. We like it. Check out our podcast <laughs> on, on why we like it. But... They don't appear to be making more of those movies. It sounds like if they are going to explore that aspect of the timeline and those characters again, it will be on a Disney Plus style show. Over 10 million subscribers on Disney Plus in the last And look what's getting greenlit right now. You have, on the one hand, Benioff and Weiss walking away from the film franchise. And then on the other hand, we've got The Mandalorian starting. We've got a Cassian and or spy thriller show in development delightfully to both of us, we have an Obi-Wan Kenobi show in development. Delightful, certainly to both of us. Delightful in a different way to one of us. Oh, yeah. 
We will discuss that at length, <laughs> I'm sure, coming up. It's just so handsome and dreamy. What do you think about the beard for uh, Duchess Satine's take? That- she's wrong. I'm a fan of Duchess Satine in general, but when it comes to Obi-Wan's beard, she is wrong. Yes, it hides his handsome face, but also it makes him look handsome in the first place. Beards are great. He's great. All right, let's talk about the actual episode. We have to start at the end. Yes. We must start. We're going to talk about our dude Mando more in a, in a few minutes. But we've got to start with Young Yoda, as I will be calling him. You can call him Baby Yoda. You can call him the being. You can call him the asset. We have no idea. We don't know. Who he's related to. We don't where know. Where he comes from. If he's he or she. We know nothing. We know nothing. Much like the actual Yoda during his entire regime <laughs> of the Jedi Temple. We know nothing. Meditate on it, we will. We'll get back to you with more theories soon. And obviously, we'll be getting more information in ensuing episodes of the show. But we're going to go through some of the possibilities here for who this could be and what the motivation of others could be for why this creature is so important. So the first place that we need to start is by establishing how little we know. George Lucas has never revealed details about Yoda's species. This is— Pointedly never revealed yes. also. This is deliberate and incredibly uncommon. You Google anything in Star Wars, like the smallest item, and there's a vast, vast store of internet scholarship about what it is. Yoda, one of the primary figures in the story, there's very, very little backstory there. This is why, of course, one of our spinoff ideas on last week's Ask the Underscore was fucks he does. <laughs> The exploration of Yoda's life as a different kind of swordsman. And my God, there's at least a chance we might have been onto something here, though, of course, there are other possibilities too. So what don't we know about Yoda's species? We don't know the name of Yoda's species. Mm -hmm. Again, incredibly uncommon. We don't know where that species comes from. And crucially, we do not know how that species procreates, how they reproduce. We also don't really know that many other members of the species. In the primary canon, we have Yoda and Yaddle. That is it. That's it. And in Legends, we have three others. Minch, Oteg, and Vander Tokare. That's five characters in total. But what do those five characters have in common? They were all powerful Jedi, all Force-sensitive. So it stands to deduce that whichever subset of the theorizing you actually think aligns with this character in terms of where it came from and how it connects to Yoda stands to reason that it's a Force-sensitive being and that probably plays some role in it. What do we know? It's trackable. It's trackable. It's 50 years old. So it's important to place this episode and The Mandalorian in time in context of the wider Star Wars universe. This takes place five years after the Battle of Endor, so 9 ABY, yes. after the Battle of Yavin, Empire has obviously fallen now. Important. It was between 5 ABY and 21 ABY, somewhere in there, that the remnants of the Empire that had fled to unmapped space began to reorder themselves as the organization known as the First Order, which is you know the primary antagonist of the trilogy movies that are happening now. So... Here's my theory. The doctor, mm-hmm. Dr. Pershing, would obviously like to take Baby Yoda. We're just going to call him Baby Yoda. Him yes. or her, Baby For Yoda. For shorthand. We're not necessarily saying Not necessarily saying, saying, saying that, but we're going to— But we're call, not not saying We're not that. not saying it either. 
wants to take, clearly wants to take Baby Yoda for study. Right. Right. For whatever reason, maybe they want to build up their cadre of force sensitives, like for whatever reason, maybe they want to have this um, creature and train it to be a dark force user. If indeed these are elements of the first order that are seeking out this child. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to guess that the client, AKA Werner Herzog is ex-military. Clearly the stormtroopers are looking to him for leadership. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like within the Empire and the First Order, there's always been a friction between the Force users and the kind of like frontline military types, whether the- The the Kylos and the Huxes. There's a lot of tension there. That seems to be playing out in this scene too, where Mm -hmm. Pershing's like, wait a second, I thought we were going to take him alive. And then the client's like, yeah, well, I'm just want to acknowledge the reality of the situation that it's, there's going to be violence involved in acquiring this asset and maybe it dies. The other notable thing about the timeline there, in addition to where it kind of puts us on the present-ish end, is the origin point, which means that the the being, the asset, is the same age as Anakin Skywalker would be if he were still alive. And that's notable, obviously, just from narrative storytelling perspectives, what was happening when. But think about Anakin's birth and Anakin's youth and the conversations around him, the idea of a chosen one rising who could bring balance to the Force, Qui-Gon's comments specifically about detecting a virgence in the Force. Mm. Could this creature be connected to that in any way? And then the biggest question of all, who is it? So there are three to four primary possibilities. There are various versions and subsets of those possibilities within them. We're going to go one by one here. Number one, That this is Yoda's child. That this is Yoda's offspring. Which, listen, we've, Yoda's taking a lot of criticism on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) If that is Yoda's child, he's in for a lot more. What a hypocrite this guy is. This would be, I have two (laughs) equally strong reactions to this. On the one hand, fucks he did. Fucks he did. (laughs) Fucks he does becomes fucks he did. It would be obviously an incredibly tough look for our guy Yoda if he was out there making Anakin feel bad about forming emotional attachments, letting love into your life, and then he was just out there laying a, down the stick. With a colleague, no we pre- less. We presume it would be Yaddle. I mean, who else we is around? I presume it would be Yaddle. else around? <laughs> I mean, a workplace affair, Yoda. With a colleague. <laughs> so it would be immensely hypocritical of him. The flip side is... Also, Yaddle potentially having to hide a pregnancy for like 10 years or something, you know, like... Well, right. Time is clearly different for the species. However, the Jedi robes, they are forgiving, you know? They are forgiving. It would be humanizing for Yoda. It really would. Like, one of the the things we're... I know we keep teasing that we're going to talk about Clone Wars at length at some point, and we will, but one of the things that we have both really delighted in as we've watched Clone Wars more is learning about that part of Obi-Wan's past, his romantic inclinations, his relationships. And I do think that when you realize that other people in the Jedi Order just have these very basic human instincts, love, desire, attachment, it makes you understand and relate to them all the more. It's much like Luke's lament in The Last Jedi about how the Jedi are flawed, but in 
we always return to this idea of what if we reposition these flaws as things that were not only okay, but normal and good. So it's all tied up in each other because that can be true. And also you can say that if that were true and it was humanizing, it would make it actually worse that he then couldn't be empathetic toward Anakin. I do think that the idea of this being Yoda's kid, while an incredibly compelling thing to contemplate, does present a little bit of a, what we'll call the King's Cross Crimes of Grindelwald problem. Mm -hmm which is to say that there would be a lot of questions then about established canon that really you'd have to do some gymnastics to make work. You know, when Yoda is back as a force ghost on Octo talking to Luke in The Last Jedi, you'd have to have some acknowledgement, you'd think, about the impact of this from right. either of their perspectives, especially given the nature of what's weighing on Luke at that point. Also, again, the math of this, this isn't like a love child that Yoda had on Dagobah, when, you know, he was lifting, uh, credit to Chris Ryan for this joke, lifting his X-Wing and his erection all at the same time. You know, I can still do it. Look at me. This was a prequel baby. Right. So the next possibility, Yoda clone. This is very plausible. I would call this the leading co-leader. Co-leader in the cult It's house. extremely plausible. Maybe not co-leader. Maybe I'll downgrade slightly, but it is, it is plausible. I will say that I... I need more episode nine information considering some of the yes. theories about how Palpatine could be in episode nine. Very plausible. Legends canon, Palpatine makes clones, period. In addition to the Palpatine episode nine question and theorizing, there's a lot of is Ray a clone mm -hmm. theorizing that goes on around episode nine. We're definitely, I agree with you. And, and we should say again, we don't know anything. Just like we don't know anything about the rest of the Mandalorian. We don't know anything about episode nine, but so much of the conversation around it taps into that idea of who made a clone? How could clones come back into the story? So I agree with you there. It seems like just as likely that this would be connecting to what's still to come as yeah. to what we've already seen. But speaking of what we've already seen, there's a lot of like Camino vibes here yeah. in various respects. First of all, just a little basket that the little baby baby Yoda's in. Kind of, it's very reminiscent of Camino and architecture and engineering. Yes, and like their nap pods. I mean, they're chairs, but yeah. I always they look like nap pods to me. The shapes, the yeah, structures under the, the curves. The math, as we've noted, dates back to before the Clone Wars era, the rise of the clone army. When we know for sure that a clone generating apparatus was fully functional and funded. And we also know, listen, they're not checking. No. It's they're like, like, oh, are you You want to make this? You want to make this? Good. How yeah. many? How are you paying? We'll talk about that later. Do you have identification? No? Fine. No one gave me a tracking fob for you or your chain code. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll make it. <laughs> no one's checking. <laughs> You just, it's like driving up and saying, I'll take the number, I'll take That's the number it. eight. I'll take the Yoda. And I'll pay you next week. <laughs> Someone will show up with the money. That's it. Also, just in terms of the associations, Mando obviously makes us think of Boba Fett. Mm -hmm. Boba makes us think of his father, <laughs> Django Fett. Heavy air quotes, father. <laughs> it's just you again. And of course, Django makes us think of cloning and the clones because Django was the source for the Kaminoans to build point. the entire clone army. You already mentioned the Palpy cloning efforts. So if this is a clone, the big question becomes how and why? Was it Yoda's choice to clone himself? That seems incredibly unlikely it to me. It doesn't seem like something 
my dude would be interested he in. He would need to have gone to at least 1,900 years old to have been able to make that decision. You know how long he would have had to meditate on that? He's not Come doing on. it. Yeah. So would it have been something that someone else did? Either to use him as a pawn or a weapon to see how powerful he is and try to use that for their own gain. Could it have been an ally? Someone in the Jedi Order? Mm-hmm. Could it have been a Sith Lord? Someone in the, what would become the Empire, but was operating as a member of the Republic at that point in time. We could continue to orient ourselves here. There's so many possibilities. I will say, I, I think we're going to find out that it's neither the Empire nor the Republican forces that did this, simply because, like, Imperial remnants are after this child. But so, maybe they're after because they want to use it and always thought they were going to be able to. We can't eliminate it. We can't eliminate it, but I think that it's it feels like this is something that has recently come to their attention. That's true. They've known about it long enough that a lot of people have tried and failed to reach it, but also right. 50 years have passed. Right. Here's one possibility. Sure. I'll throw it. it out to you. While you're looking at the, the, the miners on the moons of Naboo, I'm focusing on Dooku. I like it. Former Yoda Padawan. He was his apprentice. You, you know how easy it is to just— You could just took a fingernail yeah, or something. Get a, get, a, get a claw shaving. Yeah. When, when Yoda was hanging on Dooku's shoulder as they were running around, Dooku just took a little chip of his talon. Yeah, like, he's a little hair. It's falling out at that point. He's old. Yeah. No, easy it would have been. Put it in a test tube and send it off to Camino. Just I like it. It's pop not, off in the solar sailor. I like it a lot. Think about it. All right, another option. This one is, I think we agree, the least compelling. Yeah, Yoda being reborn in some way. First of all, it just the math doesn't make sense because Yoda was alive when this being came into creation. And also, this doesn't seem to align with the fact that Yoda returns as a force ghost. He's one with the cosmic force at that point, no longer one with the living and, force. And thematically speaking, within the Star Wars universe, this is not a thing that really happens. Right. Dead characters do come back, but they never come back in the same form. Mm-hmm. They never come back in this, in a body. And they try. Yeah. You know, Anakin, well, excuse me, Darth Vader yeah. spends a great deal of his time on Fortress Vader attempting to resurrect Padme to bring her back through the portal, and she refuses. Yeah. We do see resurrection occasionally. Mammon, whose spirit came to Vader through a mask, ended up resurrecting himself, but it did not go well. Right. It's not something that this story tends to support. I think I think we can we can't totally eliminate anything because of how little we know, but we can come close to eliminating it. So that leaves us with I, one like more it, for sure. One more option. And this seems extremely likely. Yeah. It's just another member of Yoda's species. Yes. But because of what we said earlier, I'm just precious. Oh, baby boy. Like, no, baby. Take all my money. Take all my calamari flan for all the merch <laughs> of little baby Yoda that you're making. I will be getting a cat toy for I Halo. Him. I will be getting a plush toy for myself. I'm definitely buying the Funko Pop. Yeah. I don't intend on stopping there, frankly. Maybe a t-shirt. Who it's knows? so cute. Precious. Because the five members of this nameless species that we know of were all powerful Jedi, were all highly, highly skilled and gifted Force users, if this was just a member of the species who was not a spawn of Yoda or a clone of Yoda, it still would be either a potentially very serious threat or a potentially very serious weapon because of that presumed ability just by the nature of who or what it is. And also, it's possible that the client or anyone else could think that it's directly connected to Yoda by more than just the nature of its species. Sure. That doesn't necessarily mean it has to be. Right. 
Where are you landing? What's uh, your guess right now? I, I'm going We to, reserve the right to change our minds. I want it to be Yoda's son Me just too. because of what it would do. Me too. What it would mean for the story. I mean, Fox that's- Foxy did! That is a thermal detonator. <laughs> exploding everything we know about Yoda and just reorientating it in a fascinating way. Like, incredible. yes, Yoda absolutely becomes a unrepentant hypocrite at this point, but I love what that would do to the canon. And I love what that would do to our understanding of him as a character. Is and there- yes, you're right. It absolutely grounds him in a much more relatable way. Yes, it does. Is there any chance... It's impossible to answer this, but I'll pose it as a question anyway. Is there any chance that he could have created an offspring without actually engaging in any type of coitus? Like, like we don't know it, how they procreate. In, we don't know it. Like, Maybe. he just could have, like, laid an egg sack and, yeah. like, kept it somewhere. Possibly. Yeah. Like, kept, <laughs> kept it in a cup of water for 50 years. What's this story's version of Gone Girl, spoiler, but Amy taking Nick's sample? I, I, that certainly could be the case. Right, perhaps. Never know. But it would just feel like, man, he, and he never said anything. Like, especially when he was going to pass away, he wouldn't would be he like. Would he have sensed it? Did he know? Yeah, he would have sent. But it, you would imagine he would have sensed it. Or, I mean, this is a person who is sensing things happening across the galaxy when they involve force users. Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> but with enough regularity yes. that, you know, that you could count on it. And the other thing is if he was aware of this mm-hmm. being that is possibly his child or at least a member of his species okay. existing. Where's the child support? I, I do. <laughs> I question why either as a force ghost or in his final moments as a living being, he wouldn't have said, hey, This check is on where the-, the King's Cross conundrum comes yeah, in. Check on my child. That part would be tough. Yeah. Very tough. All right. Let's let's move wait, on. Wait, where do you land? Oh, God damn it. I thought I was going to get off the hook. <laughs> I, I think that it's probably a clone, but I want it to be Yoda's child. That's I am, where I am. I am so torn. I spent most of yesterday thinking it was Yoda's child. I then kind of talked myself out of it and into clone. And then I talked myself out of that and into just a member of the species. But I do think it has to be, it just feels like it has to be directly connected to Yoda. Are they, I mean, listen. they certainly want us to think that Favreau, you don't put that image on the screen without understanding that people will immediately leap to yes. the conclusion that that is Yoda's child. Now, whether you want to kind of disrupt that as a really interesting, ah, you think this, mm-hmm. but it's something else or not, that is clearly what you are meant to think. And then there to get back and we'll move on here in, in 30 seconds. We promise Isaac. But (laughs) that question again of what George Lucas had in mind, what he was sitting on and waiting for, because clearly it was something. He's telling people, this is the one thing that's off limits for you for so long when you're taking over and you're making your stories. You don't touch this. There was a plan here and maybe this is finally it. I can't wait. Return we will after word from our sponsors. Binge about Star Wars. It's presented by State Farm. State Farm agents know that sometimes life throws everything at you at once. Like a fender bender when you're already late or a mithral who's trying to bribe you out of completing your mission. When it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are there for you. Like the guild. Talk to one of 19,000 State Farm agents via text, over the phone, in person, 
or using the State Farm app. Who knows if you can communicate with them via Tracker Fob or Bounty Puck. Find one today at statefarm.com. Today's show is also brought to you by Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, the new action-adventure game from Respawn Entertainment coming November 15th. Jedi Fallen Order is the Star Wars game you've been waiting for. Taking place between Star Wars Revenge of the Sith and Star Wars A New Hope, you can play as Cal Kestis, a.k.a. Ian from Shameless, a Jedi Padawan turned fugitive. After narrowly escaping Order 66 and the Jedi Purge, you're on a quest to rebuild the Jedi Order. Wield a lightsaber, hone iconic force powers, and complete your training to become a powerful Jedi, all while staying one step ahead of the Empire. Become a Jedi on November 15th in Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. Available on Xbox One, PS4, and PC. Rated T for T. And now back to binge mode. But ultimately, this episode wasn't about Baby Yoda. The show's not called Young Yoda. It's called The Mandalorian. Let's talk about Pedro Pascal's Mando, the Red Viper, back in our lives. (laughs) Incredible. This nameless episode takes place on nameless planets as the faceless lead character bounces about this nomadic existence. Do you think he's going to show his face? And if so, when? Because I think it's really interesting and notable that the episode opened with... You know, there's no opening crawl, right? What did we get? We got flashes of other masked or metallic beings. You know, we get Darth, we get R2, we get Kylo, etc. And obviously, when he's Anakin, we see Anakin's face. And at the very end, we see Darth Vader remove his helmet. But the bulk of the original Darth Vader arc is a man who, by definition, you cannot see or fully understand. Is that what we're going to get here? Or do you think he's going to pull it off? We're going to see his face at some point. I think Um, so, too. For various reasons, among them, the fact that in the flashback that we get during the armor scene, we see the young Mandalorian and his family without their helmets on. Now, when the Clone Wars series goes to Mandalore over the, you know, various times over the seven seasons, the Mandalorians are not wearing their helmets all the time. Certainly on their world, they're not wearing their helmets. And then when they travel off world for diplomatic missions and stuff, they're not wearing their helmets unless they're going to do battle. Right. So is it just the warrior class that never takes off their helmet? I think it's notable that in that Mandalorian refugee community, even the children are wearing their helmets in what you would assume is a something like a private space that is only for Mandalorians. So, you know, is it just the warrior class? Do you just do that off world? And then when you're on your home world, you can take your helmet off? We don't know, but I think think, listen, clearly he's going to he's gonna take his helmet off at some point. Yeah, We're going to see his think. face. And especially because you actually had the line in this episode from the 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 Mithral, Horatio Sands' Mithral. Is it true that you guys never take off your helmets? You know, maybe just among outsiders. That's asking like, us to think yeah, yeah. about that. So whether or not he does or whenever he does, the fact that the helmet remained on in the first episode— as we're trying to understand who this person is and what he's after, why he's doing the things he does, what his motivation is, that helmet reinforces so strongly the statement about how he feels about his identity and how important the question of identity is to him, how that drives him forward. We're going to talk, you're going to talk a lot more in the Jedi Temple today about Mandalorian strife and recent Mandalorian history, but just some very, very, very broad strokes here You know, think about what that armor signifies. We know right away he's part of this Mandalorian tradition. And the warrior past, the pacifist 
present that, again, you're going to talk about in detail. Well, why does a pacifist faction spring up in response yeah. to violence? And to in that in a lot of ways, you could think of wearing that armor as almost like a political statement mm-hmm. about like— It's a declaration of intent. Yeah. Yeah, this is who I am or this is who I want you to think I am. And then, you know, you think of Django, you think of Boba Fett. Of course, they wore the armor. Boba Fett made this iconic in pop culture and Star Wars lore. They worked as bounty hunters, so we associate that armor with bounty hunting. But that's not really what it is. The bulk of the people who wore that Mandalorian armor were warriors. Django breaking off to be a bounty hunter was actually, like, branded an enemy of the state. You know, that wasn't what it was supposed to be about. It's a little bit of, like, a— a rectangle square thing. Like one is always the other, but the other one isn't. (laughs) You know, like all Mandalorian warriors wear this armor, but not all of the warriors are bounty hunters. And that makes our dude Mando particularly interesting and perhaps some of the other people who he passed who we'll get to meet uh, more on one of them in, in the eight later on. He's a bounty hunter. He's a free agent. He's a freelancer. He's a rogue. That's who he is. But he's connected to this culture to these people. There's a has deeper code there. roots in history and in an idea. So why is he doing this? Yeah, I think that's a fascinating thing to consider, as is the fact that clearly he's, it's not for personal gain, so to speak. Like he's giving his, right the best guard that he uh, receives and the credits that he receives into like the for the tribe, basically, yeah. the right. clan. Money is important, but it it is disseminated in a surprising way. Dave Filoni, uh, who directed the pilot and is a EP on the series, told IGN, quote, this show is dealing with a character that, to me, he's a bounty hunter. He's on the edge of things himself. Where in the movies we deal more with Luke, who's a character coming to his own, but he wants to do the right thing. And when you're dealing with the Jedi, they're obviously trying to uphold what's good in the light side of the Force. I think that's what's unique about Mando, is that he's basically a guy that's just trying to make a living in the galaxy. He's a survivor. And he's just trying to find his way on a day-to-day basis. And I think that leads to very interesting character moments and stories for him that are apart from some things we've seen the Jedi deal with more directly. He comes from a different angle because he's a different type of character than they are. And that's evident right away. And you can see right away, they establish quite quickly, that he is adept at using his weaponry, Mm -hmm. at at utilizing his armor to complete his missions. And not only that, but that the reputation of Mandalorians as fighters absolutely precedes. And we see that in the saloon brawl, mm-hmm. the way that the characters respond to seeing him. Hey, Mando. Yep. Is it real steel? Is that real mm-hmm. Beskar steel? There's things that characters in the wider universe know about Mandalorians, and it's that they fight, they're good at what they do, and they don't take off their helmets. The first words we hear from him are, I can bring you in warm, or I can bring you in cold. Incredible tone setter. And (laughs) you just understand, this is a ruthless character, willing to be ruthless when he needs to be. Absolutely efficient. When he meets with Grief Karga, what's the first thing that Karga says? Oh, well, you're back? Right, already. Already. We understand that he's very good, very competent, and he's quick. What is motivating him? Right. That question of, Urgency, the pace, the speed at which he's operating, returning from the mission, trying to get a new one, really kind of fast forwards that question in our mind. It's like, this is pressing business to him. He needs the money. You feel it in that exchange with Carl Weathers' character, Grief Karga. But he's also willing to settle for half the rate 
you know, the calamari flan is being offered to him at half price yep. compared to the imperial credits, and he accepts that. So it's not just about some sort of end sum. It's really about getting it now, seems, in, in right. that scene there's, at yeah, least. Yeah, there's, there's an urgency. Wants it in his hands. And then the way that he immediately transitions to just thirsting after those new commissions, I'll take them all, he says. And Cargo's like, I got other people in the guild. I got to spread yeah. this out to you. You can't have them all. What are you talking about? And we're, you know, you, you can kind of glean from that interaction that that's not a common response. Right. That's not how this normally goes. And he just then asks for his highest bounty. And he talks about what it costs to you know, get fuel these days and how far that kind of money gets you. When he hears the words deep pocket about the guy who ends up being the client, that's what seals it. And then he goes to that meeting where it shifts from looking at the price that's motivating him to all of the other undercurrents in an exchange with somebody. He walks into this room. We're going to talk more about the client's perspective in a minute, but he walks into this room. Mando walks into this room. And the first thing that he sees is a room full of stormtroopers. Yeah. Most people probably just walk right back out, right? But he goes in. Their armor as we noted, is caked in blood and dirt. It's not the way you're used to seeing stormtroopers, that highly polished sheen, like they're just off the shelf, just off the conveyor belt. These people have been in battle. They've been in the muck. They're not going to be afraid to do whatever they need to do in their exchange with him. And then Dr. Pershing enters, and he is wearing clearly an imperial uniform, imperial garb. The client has a galactic empire medal draped around his neck. The Beskar that he gives him has an imperial seal on it. It's not just signs. It's overt. Like, these people were in the Empire. This is an offshoot of the Empire in some way. And you can see in the, the, the way that his body language changes, not just in, you know, getting his back up when he thinks he's under, potentially at risk when Pershing comes in, but just the way that his gait changes, the way yeah. the music changes, the way his breathing changes. He's uncomfortable with who is in there with him. And yet, he still walks in. He still sits down. He still has the conversation and he still takes the gig. Why? Why is he that desperate? And is that desperation or is it just sheer determination? We don't know enough about him yet to answer that question, but it's pretty cool that we're already asking. And one of the other things that's cool about that exchange, in addition to Herzog just fucking crushing it, is that we get to see how Mando's reputation has preceded him. Mm -hmm. The client says of Karga, he said you were the best in the Parsec. The best in the Parsec. Best. Best. The best in the Parsec. One of the things that I love about this entire scene, in addition to that the lines are really good and the delivery is super fun, is that Werner Herzog happily tells anyone who interviews him and asks him a question that he's never seen Star Wars, doesn't know anything about it. it. (laughs) You imagine arriving and reading those lines. It's what a lord. (laughs) It's incredible. Also, it's clear from any, if you've ever seen any Werner Herzog documentary or anything before we started taping, we watched the BBC clip of Werner Herzog doing an interview in which he is shot by a stray bullet and he continues the interview. Pulls his pants down to show them the wound. (laughs) It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Google it. Just a wild guy. (laughs) Much like Werner Herzog, we can see that Mando has incredible confidence because when the troopers say, we have you four to one, Mando says, I like those odds. And what makes him like it is that armor, that Mandalorian armor that he wears, it provides a lot of protection and at least is in part, certainly the helmet, we would imagine, is 
the actual Beskar steel. But the rest of it isn't. The rest of it is not. Clearly. Now, an interesting part of this is that clearly the client knows that he can hook this bounty hunter with that down payment of Beskar. Yes. This is clearly designed just to get this guy who he has heard is yes. the best. To think about this substance and the reputation it has, think back to the opening scene, that bar mm-hmm. um, scene when the thug asks, is that real Beskar steel in right. Hatties?" and then flicks his blade across the chest plate, scratching it. Later during the blur... <laughs> scratching it, meaning it's, it's not. Meaning yes. it is not, right. right. Later during the blurg bowl, we can see how the blurg, when it crunches down on his arm, yeah. is able to, to, to really break mm-hmm. through the, we'd imagine, like ceramic and metal material on the arm plate. So clearly it's not the helmet, which is dent and scratch-free, clearly must be. So what and, is and also, material? Also, the helmet must be because if it wasn't, he would have used the best car he got to make a helmet, not right. a shoulder pad, yeah. you would think, right? So what is it? It's also called Mandalorian Iron. And Mandalore and its moon, Concordia, the only known locales from which you can mine it. Extremely durable, one of the strongest metals in the galaxy. Precious. And it's so strong, in fact, that it can not only withstand a blaster shot, but crucially, a glancing blow. Not a straight-on pierce that would go through, but a swipe, a blow from a lightsaber. That's amazing. This is incredible because... First of all, anyone would want that. But second of all, Mandalorian warriors have a long history of warring yes. with the Jedi. That's part of why this is so precious to them. The material plays a key role in Rebels. Sabine Wren's construction of the arc pulse generator. It's a super weapon. And I don't know about you. My first thought when I saw this mentioned and introduced in the Mandalorian episode was, oh, it's their Valerian steel. Right. Like, it's the super steel, the metal and armor that's going to be stronger than anything else, protect you more than anything else. It's kind of fabled. It's connected to this lore. And then I I thought that Ben in his piece had another great comp, which was the armor bears and his dark materials and the way that they make the their armor, you know, this deft paws and claws that they have that they can bend and manipulate the sky iron and that it's not just protection for them. This is why I liked the comp so much. It's their souls. Right. Clearly, just from the way the Mandalorian reacts to seeing this and the way that the armorer is immediately able to place this ingot in time and space, knowing, oh, this is from the Great Purge. This Uh was taken during the Great Purge. You can sense that this material is deeply important to Mandalorians as a people. That's right. And the client promises him a Camptono of it in full payment if he's able to deliver the asset alive. It'll be less of a payment if he (laughs) brings it back proof of death. But that's like the ice cream guy. If you Google Star Wars ice cream guy, you'll see a picture from Empire of a character just running with something that people for decades thought looked like an ice cream maker and was only recently, a few months ago, confirmed that that's what a Camptono was. It's basically like a crate full of something. There you go. (laughs) And that must be, I mean, think of, again, when the Mandalorian goes to the armorer, she is pretty impressed at how much material he came with. He's like, this is extremely generous. Like, this will will sponsor many foundlings. That's right. In addition to to being able to craft your pauldron with it, like, this is a lot. That's right. So that is a fantastic treasure that is being promised to the Mandalorian. Absolutely. And beyond just the, the worth of it, it's what it means to him and his people 
emotionally, spiritually. The best car belongs back in the hands of a Mandalorian, the client says to him. It is good to restore the natural order of things after a period of such disarray. Don't you agree? Yeah. Now, very loaded statement here Absolutely. that obviously applies to much more than just the actual metal. And we can see, even with his helmet on, shielding his face, how that statement impacts Mando. Clearly, that affects him. What is the client trying to restore? What is he fighting to undo or build up? Well, we can also ask ourselves that about Mando, because just because somebody has a certain intention when they say something doesn't mean you hear it that way. So what's he thinking then? So one other thing with the armorer scene that you already mentioned when Mm. Mando takes the Beskar there and the armorer makes him Paldrin talks about the Great Purge is what we see and what we learn about him as that sequence is playing out. Because two key things happen. One, when she's talking about how generous it is, she says the excess will sponsor many foundlings. And he says, that's good to know. I was once a foundling. She says, I know. So this backstory of his is not a secret. This is a key part of his identity, foundational, right? And then we get these flashes of him losing his family as the war is raging around them, explosions, people screaming. They tuck him away somewhere. And his presumably last glimpse of them is them closing the door on him to keep him safe. And then that's it. He's an orphan after that. Was he raised on Mandalore by his family and then orphaned and raised elsewhere? Was he born elsewhere and then as a foundling became a Mandalorian? Was he adopted into the Mandalorian tribe then? Was he born on Mandalore and then raised by different Mandalorians? We don't know that yet, but clearly at some point he was raised in this culture and absorbed in it Mm -hmm. so fully that it came on to define part of his life. And that insight into his past that he was an orphan, it clearly gives him all of this empathy for others who are in this situation, this desire to help them and his tribe and his people. You know, we think of this contrast is fascinating because we think of bounty hunters, again, as these rogues, these unilateral agents, people Mm -hmm. who are acting decisively and specifically for their own gain and their own ends. But he's in a guild, okay, willing to work with other people or other beings, as we see with IG-11 later, and also clearly working for the good of his fellow, not only foundlings, but fellow Mandalorians. The show is called The Mandalorian for a reason. It's not called The Bounty Hunter. You know, we're, we're meant to be thinking about how his ties to that culture drives him and fuels his purpose. And then we get to the asset hunt, where we learn even more about him. So, takes place on a rocky planet, which we can speculate about, using the blurgs. Blurgs are native to Endor. Right, or Ryloth. And Ryloth. Doesn't mean they can't be other places, but Ryloth looks like this, at least. That's right. Now, no Twi'leks, so that would seem to count against Ryloth, and clearly not a forest planet, so probably not Endor, unless it's been absolutely devastated by the destruction of the second Death Star. The Ugnaught, Nick Nolte, (laughs) tells him that many other bounty hunters have come seeking the one that he is now seeking. They died. Again, letting you know that this is an extremely valuable Mm -hmm. thing that Mm -hmm. is up for grabs here. He also displays a really fascinating level of knowledge about Mandalorian culture. Yes. When the Mandalorian is getting thrown from atop the blur. Yes. And is like, hey, listen, you got a speeder or something? Like, why are we even— Do you have lift on your phone? Yeah. Nick Dolce says, you were a Mandalorian. Your ancestors rode the great mythosaur. Basically saying, like, can you not, like, you can do this. Are you who you think you are? And it really bucks up the Mandalorian, at which point he's like, okay, let's do this. 
And then they arrive at the village and Nick Noli says, <laughs> I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> I support it. I have never met a Mandalorian. I have only read the stories. If they are true, you will make quick work of it. And there will again be peace. Before this, he had basically said, listen, there's a lot of outsiders coming to this planet. The people who come to this planet come here because they want to get away from all the shit that's happening in the galaxy. Right. They're basically like, you know, space pioneers. They just want to start over, start another life. And again, that's possibly a way that Blurgs have got to this planet. Mm -hmm. You think about like wild hogs in North America, right? right. They got sure. here because people transported them here and they got loose. Maybe right. that's how the Blurgs got loose. Will the Blurgs be at the center of a... Highly viral tweet one day, like yeah. feral hogs. <laughs> what is it? 30 to 50 wild blurks. <laughs> um, but an interesting insight into like the way people live in the galaxy now and the, and the effects of these years of upheaval have had on various people who are just trying to make their way in the galaxy. And then he sees the IG-11. IG-11, dope as fuck. Just sauntering in. Spinning around, no shot he misses. Every body part moves in every direction. It's amazing to see him in action. It's really, really cool. Voiced by <laughs> director, screenwriter <laughs> Taika Waititi. You Incredible. know him from uh, Thor Ragnarok. Thor Ragnarok and the recent Jojo Rabbit. I mean, that's another thing. Like we, were, this is something we were talking about before the we started taping is. It is extremely discompopulating to be dropped in media res in the middle of the story with no names, no place names, no idea what we're doing. It is on a meta level also discombobulating to have Nick Nolte and Taika Waititi yeah. <laughs> voice and physically embody these characters that you're like, man, I don't know if we're ever going to see these people again. I know. That is like extremely wild stunt casting that I love, but is just one of those things like, man, Taika Waititi comes in for. Two and a half minutes? Are we ever going to... I wonder if we're ever going to see this guy again. I wonder. And that sets off the encounter with the people that are guarding the asset. And of course, sets up a little bit of tension with the Mandalorian who, you know, again, we know very little about him. But what we do know is he doesn't like droids. Right. He says no droids when that first Uber arrives on the ice planet. And... When he first sees IG-11, he says, ugh, droids. Problematic. And then even after they've survived a battle to the death together, he says, you know you're not so bad for a droid. I <laughs> so clearly he doesn't like it. And again, the question is, what's motivating that dislike? Does he fear technology? Does he want to be off the grid? Does he have a specific droid-centric trauma in his past? I mean, the thing, listen, I will say that this droid was quite amenable to negotiation. An arrangement. Yes. Until that, a crucial moment at the end. Right. Not amenable to a negotiation then. That said, IG was also like, okay, this is not going well. I'm going to blow up now. Yeah. <laughs> that like, was tough. And Mandalorian is like, no, don't do it. <laughs> like, wait. Why are you valing right now? Like, let's figure this out. I wish he had said that. I wish that had become like parlance in the language. And interestingly, neither Mando nor IG-11. It's, it's not their job to understand why. Yeah. I think wow. it's really fascinating. You, you went Barrack no, and John on me no, there. No, but I think that that's really— <laughs> it's not I, I, I think it's an interesting part of like the job is like, give me the job. I don't know right. the backstory. That's not why I'm here. They also, though, don't understand why they're both there. And right. neither do we. You know, is more than one person 
funding a bounty here? Are there competing factions trying to achieve an end here? That's Is the a, client sending both of them out there? That's a great point. They have because, different orders. Because it's clear that that's not how, within the guild, it's not supposed to work like that. Not supposed to it's work not that suppo- way. You're not supposed to double dip on a job. Yes, we're going to talk about the guild and their code later, but also they just have a different set of orders, right. you know? Mando was told, bring this asset back alive. If you can't, okay, but try really hard. And IG-11's like, I was told, to, I was told to shoot the baby in the head, you know? So that's different. And after they survive this incredibly thrilling battle, they make their way inside, by the way, like using the cannon to shoot down the door. You don't really care what's on the other side if you're doing that. That's my one note. Like, we see the the, the the shots coming through on the Here's other my side. Other You're note. very lucky Baby Yoda was in a cocoon. Here's my other note. Slight aside. Love the episode. Yeah. John Favreau and everyone. I can't wait to see more. What was the stone pillar made of? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. What, Great point. Make the entire building <laughs> out of the stone pillar. That's a fucking great point. It was... Heavily chipped, but it stood. It stood. Whereas the, like... Just make everything out of that. Four-inch thick metal plate Make the fell. armor out of that. <laughs> That's a great note. Incredible note. So they get through, they discover Baby Yoda, and Mando's like, they said it was 50 years old. What's going on here, right? IG, ready to kill immediately. Following orders. We're going to talk about IG just a touch more later in a, in a few minutes. But Mando can't do it. He insists, we're bringing him in alive. And it's very clear that it's not just because that's what's going to fetch the higher price. It's because he cannot bring himself to kill this being. Yeah, I mean, his motivations in this regard are fascinating. Why we hope, because it'd be great to follow a character that has that kind of like morality, that it's not- Right, you hope it's it's just because it's clearly wrong. It's clearly wrong. But is what else is at work? And that leads us to- Something about seeing a, even though it's 50, we understand rationally it's 50, it appears to be a child, a baby. And again, it's, innocent, as far as we know, and it's defenseless. And he, as a foundling, was uh, once in that position. So is he seeing himself in this 50-year-old baby and the way that they, we get that ET moment where they they reach out with the, you know, the fingers to touch or, you know, Adam. I mean, there are so many images that that recalls. That's quite a powerful sequence. It's sort of chill-inducing. And his his motivations there are at odds. You know, he needs the Beskar. He needs the payday. Obviously, he gets more Beskar if he brings it back alive. But he's clearly driven by something bigger there, some higher purpose. And he just turns around and shoots IG-11 in the head. Without any, without without a thought. He's like, oh, you're going to kill it? No. That was 30 seconds earlier. He was like, oh, you have a boo-boo. Are you okay? And then he shot him in the head. So how did they all end up in there in the first place? You talked about this a few minutes ago. That brings us to uh, Werner Herzog, the The client. client. Who is he? What does he want with Baby Yoda? Yeah, why does he want him? Clearly, he's prepared for the eventuality or the potential, the potentiality that Baby Yoda could die. And he's fine with that, though not fine enough to pay full price. Again, seems to be Imperial, wearing an Imperial medal. Pershing in the Imperial uniform. The the Beskar has the Imperial seal. Again, stormtroopers are there. (laughs) Stormtroopers. Right. Listen, the Empire has fallen. The idea that kind of like underwrites the expanded universe in general after uh, Return of the Jedi is like you defeat a organization in battle, but like everybody doesn't just go away. disappear. Yeah. These people have to go off and do something right. with their lives. They either have to try to rebuild it or build something new. So what are they doing now? Are these stormtroopers here because they believe in what they're doing? Right. Clearly, there is not the kind of 
we know the client has deep pockets, okay? Right. So he can pay these guys. Right, are they there because they're loyal to him or because right. he's paying them? Exactly, what does that mean? And then while he can pay them, clearly the upkeep, the kind of resources associated with the empire right. that, that can build like these vast bases capable of destroying whole planets, clearly that's gone because these guys can't even take a toothbrush that's to their right. armor anymore. That's right. Like it's not, they can't refit and replace in the same way that they could. So what is this organization? Right. And what does this organization and the person at presumably the head of it, or at least in a key position of power, want with the asset? I think an interesting question that we have to ask here is, why is there a debate between the client and Dr. Pershing about the state in which the asset should be returned? And who's running this show? That's right. the other thing. Is it the scientists? Is it Dr. Pershing who's being like, we need to get this thing? It definitely seems like the client is in charge, but maybe neither of them are. And maybe yeah. maybe Dr. Pershing's power comes from someone that they should both be fearing or cowering to in some respect. You know, again, IG-11 clearly out to kill. Pershing clearly wants this asset alive. And when the client says, I acknowledge that bounty hunting is a complicated profession, this being the case, proof of termination is also acceptable for a lower fee. Pershing freaks out. That is not what we agreed upon. Like, it's important to him clearly that this creature be brought back alive. Are they intending to study its force powers, to turn it into a tool for whatever game they are running? Do they just want to squash some sort of threat? And agreed upon, I think, is important language because Pershing in that white suit, we would assume then that he is maybe directly related to the kind of like remnants that become part of the First Order. Agreement means that someone above them didn't really order them both to do this. Like he was, Pershing wants to acquire this asset and then he put the job out on the open market and was put in touch with this client, the Werner Herzog, who can command ex-imperial forces in a way that can accomplish this mission. Right. He's ultimately the authority in the room in this moment, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's the ultimate. What do we think he might be after? You know, you mentioned the timeline of the First Order somewhere between 5 and 21. So they're maybe coalescing somewhere in the far reaches of the galaxy at this moment. Is he involved in that? Is he one of the people who's trying to get the First Order off the ground? Is he just interested in fending off a Jedi threat? It's unclear, but again, consider that quote that we mentioned earlier. It is good to restore the natural order of things after a period of such disarray. Don't you agree? What is he trying to restore? I I will say that one thing that we— The Empire? The Empire. One thing that we know at this time is is Snoke is around Mm -hmm. and arguably would not have an apprentice at this particular time. Maybe he's thinking, oh, here's a potential apprentice for me. Raise him as my own. You're right. They could be out recruiting and scouting on someone else's behalf. That's interesting to think about. So what about, we'll go very quickly through a couple of the other primary figures in the episode. Nick Nolte, the Ugnot Quill? Keel? Keel? Quill? We don't know. Why does he help? I think that's just something we should talk about for just a minute here. Because clearly he is pursuing peace. In the Clone Wars episodes that you're going to talk about in a few minutes in the Jedi Temple, Satine and Obi-Wan have this kind of ever-present tension about really what the nature of peace is and how peace and violence can possibly coexist. You know, can you be a protector of the peace if you're perpetrating violent acts? Mm. And if you're leading somebody to slaughter a defenseless creature, but you're doing it in the pursuit of peace, where do you fall on this moral spectrum exactly? And he has what's so interesting, and again, an episode that sparks so many questions, we kind of understand that he just has total clarity. 
total clarity. He knows exactly what he's, I have spoken. Every sentence sense with I have spoken, yeah. right? There, there is something so definitive about that. Watching no argument. It's not a negotiation. He wants everyone to get out of his backyard so he can golf freely and enjoy the afternoon sun. They do not belong here. Those that live here come to seek peace. There will be no peace until they're gone. Again, reminiscent of someone like Satine pursuing peace above all. And or so also reminiscent of like, listen, the Western themes, stuff like Unforgiven, where characters who have done things throughout the galaxy, maybe immoral things, kind of go to the frontier to just be a farmer and reinvent right. their lives. And that's what they're trying to do now. It made me think of another earlier Clone Wars plot too from season one, the Lerman, these beings who live, they carve out seed pods and live there in homes and they just want to be left alone. They don't want the war to come to their doorstep to the point that even when it does, they're not all willing to engage with just the reality of life in the galaxy because they're so determined to pursue peace above all. And then you have like a contrasting figure like IG-11, who very much in the IG-88 mold, the bounty hunter introduced in Empire Strikes Back, who we've talked about before on our droid character study, yes. decided, you know, self-actualized and said, I want to be a hunter. I want to be, this is what I want to do. I want to kill. And we don't know enough about IG-11. It doesn't seem that IG-11 has that level of agency given the, well, I was sent to kill this target and also I'm going to blow myself up because it's right, not because, going well following that's, right. protocol. Right. Manufacturer's protocol states that I cannot be captured. Why is IG-11 so content to die? I think it speaks to the level of sentience that we would expect from a different level of sentience separating droids from biological creatures. They're you know, we often talk, we've talked before about droids being programmed to protect themselves, mm -hmm. but clearly only to a level and not in a way that would supersede them accomplishing their mission or accomplishing or fulfilling the rules of engagement for a mission. Right. And it's interesting through the lens of droid prejudice right. to consider the way IG-11 acts in the field. I'm rooting for IG-11 yeah. returning to us in some form. I hope that we get more time with this character. Jason, yes. it's good to restore the natural order of things after a period of such disarray. It is. Don't you agree? So please gather the Padawan learners and head to the Jedi Temple. Teach us everything we need to know about the recent history of Mandalore and Mandalorian conflicts. Most of what we know about Mandalorian's people come from the Clone Wars series, which has some interesting ties to Wonderful. the Mandalorian series, which we will talk about a bit more in the eight. The Outer Rim system of Mandalore, encompassing the titular homeworld, its moon Concordia, and the planet Kalavala, is best known for its words. Indeed, the word Mandalorian itself conjures images of heavily armed fighters clad in battered and chipped battle armor, face covered by the distinctive helmet with the T-shape over the face. In centuries past, Mandalorian warriors battled the Jedi and even sacked the Jedi Temple on Coruscant. Feared for its violent prowess, ancient Mandalore was an important military and political power in the Outer Rim. But years of constant warfare devastated the Mandalorian environment and exhausted its population. In the years preceding the Clone Wars, a new anti-war political movement, the New Mandalorians, came to the forefront. The New Mandalorians lived in dome cities, which protected them from the devastated environment, and they rejected violence, preaching cooperative living. A terrifyingly brutal civil war ensued between the new Mandalorians and the hardliners. Mirroring events in Attack of the Clones, the Jedi Council sent two of its order, Qui-Gon Jinn and his Padawan learner, Obi-Wan Kenobi, to Mandalore to protect the young 
Duchess Satine Kreez of Mandalore, an important new Mandalorian leader. Obi and Satine had at the very least a very against the rules emotional fling. They were in love. Which ended when the Jedi were recalled to Coruscant after the successful completion of their mission. Duchess Satine and the new Mandalorians were in control, but the cost was frightful. Many millions perished. The remaining hardline warriors were exiled to Concordia. This was the state of affairs in Mandalore when the Galactic Civil War broke out. Mandalorians, having so recently gone through an internecine bloodletting of their own, one that killed the majority of the system's inhabitants, were not eager to pick a side in someone else's war. And besides, the new Mandalorians were an anti-violence party, and they came to power on the strength of that belief. Yes, they fought when war against the hardliners was forced on them, but they weren't about to go looking for battles elsewhere in the galaxy. Duchess Satine, despite entreaties from the Republic and the Separatists, strove to keep Mandalore neutral. Satine became one of the leading voices in the Council of Neutral Systems, a collection of 1,500 planets who wanted no part in the Galactic War. The new Mandalorian rebrand and a few years of being space Switzerland, however, wasn't quite enough to make people forget about the many, many, many years when warriors in Beskar steel cut swaths of blood through the galaxy. Darth Sidious and his apprentice Count Dooku skillfully exploited Mandalore's history and reputation, seeding a conspiracy theory that Satine and the new Mandalorian's peacenik image was in fact a ruse, and that in actuality, the Mandalorians were itching to return to their violent ways, building an army in preparation for entering the fight on the side of the Separatists. And there seemed to be some truth to this. After all, Obi-Wan Kenobi had just fought a man wearing Mandalorian armor named Jango Fett on Kamino, where he was being used as the genetic template for a vast clone army. But Dooku's incitements went beyond whispers and misconceptions. When Obi arrives on Mandalore to investigate the rumors, he tells the Duchess that a Mandalorian terrorist recently attacked a Republican ship. The suspect committed suicide before he could be questioned. Unfortunately for Satine, there were elements of Mandalorian society who were disgusted by the changes wrought by the new Mandalorians. They yearned for a return to the warrior identity which they felt had been stolen from them. Some a bitter few, the hardcore remnants of fighters exiled to Concordia at the end of the Civil War wanted to do something about it. They wanted regime change. And they formed the terrorist organization Death Watch. Great De- name. Incredible name. Death Watch were perhaps the most eager of the pawns in Sidious and Dooku's grand game. In return for carrying out bombings and other attacks meant to destabilize the new Mandalorian government, Dooku promised that when the time came, he would support Death Watch in taking over the system. Obi-Wan and the Duchess eventually discovered that Death Watch's leader is the governor of Concordia, Pre Vizsla, mm-hmm. a descendant of Tare Vizsla, an ancient ruler of Mandalore and the first Mandalorian to join the Jedi Council. Satine, who initially tried to downplay Death Watch's seriousness, traveled to Coruscant under Obi-Wan's protection to argue for Mandalore's continued and sincere neutrality and to allay any concerns the Republic might have about the Death Watch threat. This last point was crucial. Obi-Wan and the Council suspected rightly that Death Watch was allied with the Separatists. Satine knew that the Senate could, seeking to stabilize the new Mandalorian government, send troops to occupy Mandalore. In reality, this would only drive Mandalorian public opinion to the extreme and into the waiting arms of the Death Watch. Satine was a forceful and effective voice for Mandalorian autonomy and neutrality. At times, it seemed as if she was all that stood between Mandalore's peaceful independence and all-out war. That, of course, made her a target. Death Watch tried numerous times to assassinate her, both en route to Coruscant and in the Republican capital. 
While these attempts failed, they also alarmed the Senate due to Death Watch's links to the separatists. A ploy to use a hologram video of the deputy minister of Mandalore edited so it appeared he was asking for the Republic to occupy the system was also thwarted. Eventually, Vizsla, realizing that Dooku's promise to aid Death Watch in taking over would never actually materialize, broke with the Sith. During this time, Mandalore was seen as being stable enough to host a historic peace conference, the first attempt at a negotiated settlement to the Galactic Civil War. Of course, that wouldn't last. Death Watch, now an avowed enemy of the Republic, the Separatists, and the new Mandalorian government, allied with the only people that would have them, Darth Maul and his brother, Savage. Maul, for reasons of his own, but to the benefit of the Death Watch, then organized an army of criminals comprised of the major galactic crime families. Maul's Shadow Collective was the precursor to the criminal group now known as Crimson Dawn. Shadow Collective infiltrated the Mandalorian capital, sowing chaos and violence. Satine's forces were paralyzed by the simultaneous attacks, and the population grew restive. Fear gripped the capital. Then, Vistla and the Death Watch emerged, presenting themselves as Mandalore's saviors, double-crossing Maul and Savage in the process. They overthrew and imprisoned Satine. Vistla installed himself as the new prime minister, but was soon killed in single combat by Maul for his betrayal. Maul, believing that Death Watch would, according to Mandalorian custom, be duty-bound to follow him as their new leader, sought to consolidate his gains. And some did follow him, but many did not, on the grounds that, hey, Mandalorian custom should pertain to Mandalorians only. And Darth Maul, of course, was a Dathomirian, therefore shouldn't apply. In a move reminiscent of Dryden Voss and Crimson Dawn, Maul then took control of Mandalore, using Prime Minister Almec, who had been imprisoned for a black market scheme involving toxic tea, as his figurehead. Duchess Satine, with the help of loyalists and the Death Watch members who refused to join Maul, escaped. She was quickly recaptured, but not before sending a message to the Jedi Council and her old flame, Obi-Wan. <laughs> Knowing the Council would not send aid to a neutral world, Obi-Wan traveled to Mandalore to rescue the Duchess alone. Ah. This attempt was thwarted. Ah. The pair were brought before Maul, who then brutally tortured and executed Satine in front of Obi-Wan with her last breath. This is devastating. She professed her love to Obi-Wan. <laughs> with her died any hope for Mandalorian uh, peace. Soon after, a full-fledged civil war broke out on Mandalore. Obi-Wan... Freed by Bo-Katan Kreese, Satine's sister and leader of the Death Watch splinter group who refused to follow Maul, informs the Senate of Maul's Mandalorian coup. And there the story ends. Now, at 2016 Star Wars Celebration Europe, Clone Wars producer and now Mandalorian director Dave Filoni revealed that one of the stories he had planned for the series before it was canceled in 2013 was the Republic's Siege of Mandalore. That would have taken us to about 28 years before the events shown in The Mandalorian and perhaps... Season 7! Season 7 of The Clone Wars on Disney Plus will give us more. Clone Wars is fucking great. I can't wait. That was awesome. Mal, those that live here come to seek peace. There will be no peace until there are nuggets. Let's roll like BB-8 through eight of our favorite insights and observations from this episode, lightning round style. I'll go first. Number one. The Razorcrest. Folks, we have a new Star Wars ship. It's junky, but I like it. The captured Mithral both knocks and attempts to belatedly praise Mando's ship. And while we haven't seen a ton of it yet, and while it clearly doesn't offer any luxuries, certainly when compared to pleasure yachts, I tend to gravitate to, like the first light, it's clear that the Razorcrest has some personality. 
Some of that spunk comes from the gunship, a class of vessel often deployed for military troop transport being so old. The since repurposed vessel entered the fray before the rise of Palpatine's empire, patrolling local territories, according to the Star Wars data bank. Razorcrest was, wonderfully, built by Lucasfilm as a practical effect model yeah. rather than cool. as a digital creation. The strength shows. The ship withstood the Ravenac's fierce grasp, and despite its lack of flash, it's clearly utilitarian, full of essentials for a bounty hunter's lonely life in space. We got a quick look at the armory, which seemed well-stocked, and the carbonite chamber, which seemed highly effective. And amazingly, we got a glimpse of something else tucked into the nooks and crannies, which brings us delightfully, metaphorically, to number two. Number two. Refreshers. It is all too rare that Star Wars provides insight into hygiene. And as with our dear friend, Harry, who we still cannot confirm with certainty bathed outside of his one dip into the prefect's tub and gobbled a fire, we don't know much in primary canon about how our space pals cleanse their bodies or evacuate them. It was therefore a sincere delight to see the captured Mithral talk, even as a farce, about his need to use the vac tube, a.k.a. the toilet inside of the bathroom, a.k.a. the refresher. While the word refresher in Legends canon can refer to what we Earthlings would call a toilet, it also stands in for bathroom, restroom in general. Sonics are the substitute for showers, cleansing one's person without water, but rather these ultrasonic pulses that vibrate the muck away. <laughs> Incredible. Santa streams <laughs> are baths and showers, and effluvial rinsers are... We actually don't know, and maybe it's better not to find out. Perhaps they're sinks, maybe bidets. Who can say? On and on the list goes. In the book Choose Your Destiny, a Finn and Poe adventure, Finn explains that there were north of 1,800 refreshers on a first-order Star Destroyer, so we know that the bad guys are well-stocked. And we've occasionally seen our heroes including Han and Rey, separately, to be clear, around refreshers too. And now we can all experience them for ourselves because the bathrooms at Disney's Galaxy's Edge theme park are called refreshers. Wonderful. So don't worry. If you're wondering where all the waste goes after a glass of blue milk, the answer is somewhere dedicated and defined. And if you're lucky enough, somewhere with a privacy screen. Not on the razor crest, as we saw. No. Perhaps we found the biggest difference here after all of our discussion between a lightsaber and a wand. With the former, you can't vanish your shit, but you also don't need to. Number three, Blurgs. These buttes first appeared in primary canon in Liberty on Ryloth, the 21st episode of Clone Wars Season 1, and he walks the battle for Endor in Legends canon. And in Chapter 1, we met three more. First on the offensive, then cruelly battered and zapped, and then touchingly bonded with Harry and Buckby style and ridden across the treacherous terrain. Blurgs are non-sentient beings, and as the ferocity on display when they attack Mando showed, are capable of displaying rising tempers and then chewing through whatever's in their way. When they're not carrying cargo or gnawing through trees, they're living the life of herbivores, though that doesn't mean they never show an interest in meat. In fact, the females, as we heard in chapter one, eat the men after mating. Yes. Delicious. Oh. Despite only having two legs, Blurgs are exceptionally fast, faster than your riding machines, as Taboon said to stock in Clone Wars. And they're sure-footed, bopping about with precision and care, earning the nickname Three-Toe in Legends Tales. Number four. Guys, was Boba Fett in this episode? Now, that might seem like a very strange question to ask, given that we watched him, we thought, die in Return of the Jedi. Much of the initial chatter following the announcement that The Mandalorian would be a series hinged on whether Boba, who, of course, made The Mandalorian armor so iconic during the original trilogy, would be the titular character despite falling into that Sarlacc pit in Jedi and presumably being digested like Klieg inside of Shmi, as Jason once 
famously said, over the course of a thousand years. But Favreau and Filoni have both denied that Boba was going to be the Mandalorian, and our lead is clearly another guy, right? Flashing back to his foundling youth, not his time with dad, Django, on Camino, etc. Different color armor on and on the list goes. But that doesn't mean that Boba's not on the show or that he died in the Dune Sea on Tatooine because Boba survives, definitively survives in Legends canon. And fans have long wondered if Boba, who was recently the subject of a planned and then canceled anthology film, could have survived in the primary canon too, using his jetpack to escape from the Sarlacc. In this episode, as Mando walks into the Mandalorian clubhouse lair, a character who looks remarkably like Boba Fett is visible briefly to the right of the screen. The signature red and green armor, right down to the matching dents in his helmet. 18 and a half minute mark. Take a look, brighten your screen. Looks like Boba might be in the story after all. Number five, speaking of Boba and bounty hunters, what's up with the bounty hunter guild, guys? No word on whether the members of this regulatory body ever meet up at the Continental, but there is a real John Wick feel to everything. Guild members get guild jobs, but they also must abide by the guild's unwritten bounty hunter's code, which, among other edicts, prohibits stealing a fellow guild member's bounty once it's been assigned or killing a peer. Hunters are also called by this creed to come to each other's aid in moments of need, as we saw here with Mando and IG-11. A guild master leads the unit, and in 9ABY, that may be Carl Weathers' Grief Karga, though we don't know for sure, one of the only named characters in the show so far. In Legends, double-digit houses make up the heart of the guild, and each of those clusters has an area of specialization from hunting murderers to hunting Jedi. The guild dates back thousands of years and stems from a classic bit of galactic politicking. The Jedi long ago complained to the Senate about the number of deaths the bounty hunters were causing, and the Senate's solution was hilariously let them figure it out, ordering that the bounty hunters forge bodies to police themselves. What could go wrong? It's amazing that none of that lasted and that everyone wasn't okay. Number six, some of the many, many, many Easter eggs to Star Wars past in this episode that we haven't already talked about. Gunk droids, a.k.a. the trash can-looking fellas, first seen in A New Hope. And of course, Carbonite, in which Boba Fett froze Han Solo when Empire strikes back in order to transport him to Jabba's palace. Not always a tool of the enemy, though. In Clone Wars, Anakin, Obi-Wan, Ahsoka, and their clones use Carbonite on themselves as part of a stealth mission. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly, you spotted the Kowokian monkey lizard Perhaps kin to our dear salacious crumb. I felt for one moment I felt, felt bad. bad. One of them is roasting on a spit, and the other is watching Awful. in horror. Though he also making him watch is tough. He does have a little bit of that Night's Watch never knew Bannon could smell so good kind of energy as he's watching his his kin burn. Speaking of the Jabba adjacent. The legions that Mando and IG-11 gunned down certainly appear to include Nikdos, who serve Jabba in mm. Return of the Jedi. So could, as our colleague Ben Lindbergh posed on TheRinger.com, could this potentially point to a connection between Young Yoda and the Hut Syndicate in some way? Interesting to think about. Out of rim, might be. Maybe so. And how about Mando's gun? which certainly appears to be an Ambin face pulse blaster, as Gizmodo noted last October when John Favreau first posted an image of this weapon from the set on his own Instagram. That appears to be the pulse gun that we see Boba Fett holding in the infamous Star Wars holiday special. But that's not all on the holiday special front. Chapter one also gave us a mention of Life Day, the Wookiee holiday centered on their tree of life. Number seven, before John Favreau made The Mandalorian, he played a Mandalorian. That's right. Specifically, pre Vizsla, the Death Watch leader who I mentioned earlier. Fav's voice Vizsla in The Clone Wars, which he worked on with 
current Mando EP and sometimes director Dave Filoni, bum, 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 who said, quote, he's the one guy that in this whole Mandalorian world is the defender of the historic Mandalorian past. He's the one character who knows what the Mandalorians were and what they should be and wants to get them back to that reality. He's a great character. And I think that he'll become a favorite of many fans. It's almost eerie to read that now, knowing that Favreau will go on to spearhead a project about the Mandalorian people. But the T-shaped helmet has a special place in his heart for some time. At Star Wars Celebration, as he and Filoni shared a story of meeting at Skywalker Ranch long ago, then syncing up pre-Vizsla, Fav said that Mandalorians, quote, were my favorite characters. I mean, if you're going to play anything, indeed. Indeed. Number eight. One of the many positive reactions to this episode stemmed from the music that accompanied our protagonist's journey to reach the asset and shouts to the wonderful Isaac Lee for his assistance with this item. To score The Mandalorian, Favreau tapped none other than Oscar and Grammy-winning composer Ludwig Göransson, 35-year-old Swede, best known for his work as Childish Gambino's producer and many other endeavors in the hip-hop world, also highly respected as a film score composer. Screen credits include Community, Fruitvale Station, New Girl, Creed 1 and 2, Black Panther, for which he won an Oscar and a Grammy, and the upcoming Christopher Nolan film, Tenet. Now, according to Goranson, the unique sonic texture that we hear in this episode is very much intentional. In a recent interview with the LA Times, he explained, quote, the way I approached it was to try something completely different. The loneliness of a single solo flute. The Mm. bass recorder became the sound of the Mandalorian. That's how I started. I wanted the core soul to be organic. And then I wanted to add a tech sound to it. And I also wanted to add on a cinematic orchestra, which makes it feel like Star Wars. To achieve this, he said in a New York Times profile earlier this week that he, quote, locked himself in a studio for a month and then went into, quote, an almost meditative state. Meditate on it, he did. In other words, the result, a dystopian soundscape that resembles Favreau's vision of, quote, a lonesome rider and a samurai inspiration. Jason? Yes. Unless I'm mistaken, you are as of yet Empty-handed. Correct. But today's winner isn't. Every episode, we're going to honor the character who rallied the troops, advanced the cause in some way. And today, the winner of our Medal of Bravery is... Dave Filoni. Yes, this is John Favreau's show, of course, and he crushed it. But... We want us to tip our helmet caps to another creative force in the Star Wars universe, Filoni, who directed the pilot, will also direct one more episode later in the season, and is serving as the executive producer on the series. Beyond his role in this show, though, he is one of the stealth MVPs in yes. all of Star Wars. He was the supervising director on Clone Wars, seasons one through six, and is now bringing it back for season seven to finish it on Disney+. Plus. He was the executive producer of Star Wars Rebels, the creator of Star Wars Resistance. In other words, he is as responsible for Star Wars television content as anyone. Amazing. He's been creating Star Wars stories for more than a decade and, crucially, has helped to invent cherished characters who exist outside of the cinematic experience. There is a great profile on Filoni on Vanity Fair right now from Anthony Bresnikan. If you're interested in learning more about Filoni, uh, about his standing in the Star Wars franchise, they call him the Chosen One. The, quote, carrier of the creator's knowledge. That's from the Vanity Fair piece because Filoni was handpicked, handpicked by George Mm -hmm. Lucas to help expand Star Wars into television series. And it really shows. Yes. Is Filoni's closeness to Lucas and trust of Lucas from how we finally got another Yoda creature in the Star Wars story? Maybe. 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 Dave Filoni, come on, binge mode. Come on, binge mode. Come on. All right, friends. We're going to wrap. While we're still young and the musk still sweet. Oh, delicious. <laughs> That's the advice we got from Isaac Lee and Zach Graham, our indispensable producer and researcher. 
We hope you had as much fun as we did today that you're as excited as we are to hop back into the speeder. Droids are welcome. Continue to explore the galaxy with us and that you'll join us again next time. Until then, remember, podcasts age differently. Perhaps binge mode could live many centuries. Those are Imperial credits. They still spend. Maybe you haven't noticed, but the Empire doesn't exist anymore. Okay, I've got calamari flan, but it's got to be half. What else? I've got taco burrito, also half. Uh, What else? I've got eggplant tomato, also uh, cookie cookie. I've got tres leches. Well, let's see. I've got uh, pork fried rice. I've got egg roll spring roll. 50% with egg roll spring roll.